0: Well, hello there, Bobbers. Are you ready to rock and roll? Well, are you? Hey there, happy innovators. How you guys doing? How you doing? Huh? With all this COVID-19 business, how you doing? You hanging in there? You hanging out with your family? Your pets kind of staying inside, self-quarantining? Washing your hands, of course, trying to remain safe, but, you know, it's not so bad, is it? Is it? I don't think it is. Maybe I'll talk about that in a little while, but before I do all that and get into all the minutia of the COVID-19 era, um, I'm going to explain to you that, you know, a couple episodes back I did the episode Five Days, you know, Where I kind of recorded a little bit every day Rather than just recording everything in one day You know, just kind of go through the week Every, you know, afternoon or morning or something And kind of talk a little bit And stop and then pick it up again the next day Talk a little bit more about something else, right? You got it And that episode did pretty good for me You know, it was a successful experiment And I figured because, like me You're probably, you know, inside your house not really going anywhere and uh, probably, you know, could use some content from the Singularity podcast, you know, something new and uh, something that will kind of keep you entertained in those long days inside your house. And I can understand that. It's got to be difficult for a lot of people. For me, it's not very difficult, you know, because I'm used to just... Being in the studio all day, you know. But to make it official, I will say, it is Monday, March twenty third, twenty twenty. First day of the week, actually the second week of you know the official COVID crisis for the United States. Uh, It started a week ago today, and uh, so we're a week into this whole process and. Um, I gotta say it's been, um, for at least for me on my end, it's been a little bit different than I thought it might be. Um, and in a lot of ways, it kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the things that have been going on and a lot of the things that are being done are kind of renewing my faith in humanity a little bit, you know? Um, kind of surprised at how many people are kind of stepping up and, you know, being generous and you know, trying to make it easier for other people, you know, and I don't really know what it's like in other countries, but I can speak for what, you know, I've experienced myself and here in the States, you know, as weird as people can be and is, you know, standoffish. And of course, we're supposed to be practicing, you know, self-isolation, self-distancing and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, Regardless of all that stuff, the people of the United States, when there's a crisis or a problem or something, man, they do so good at coming together and just kind of, you know, just stepping up to the plate and helping out the person next to them, you know? And uh, I guess in some ways it might be a little strange that it takes a crisis, uh, you know, or something bad to happen before that kind of behavior manifests itself, but I don't know. I can kind of understand that, right? In normal circumstances, you know, it's, you know, for most people anyway, you know, Americans kind of like try to keep to themselves, right? They try to kind of like keep their head down. They're usually busy, you know, doing what they're doing and stuff. But in a situation like this where everything is forced to just stop, everybody is forced to stop. It's stay home, you know, not go anywhere, it kind of, in some ways, could be an inconvenience, and I understand that, but I think, really, at least from talking to some of my friends and stuff, from all over the country, too, actually from all over the world, I've been kind of grilling everybody I know about the experience they're having. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for a lot of people, I think, as weird as that sounds, It's a weird opportunity for um, people to put everything down for just a little while and actually spend time with their families, you know, or spend time in their houses, you know. Um, It's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's an inconvenience, yes, but, you know, like at least where I'm at right now, in Massachusetts. It's not a mandated quarantine. You know, we're not in a forced shutdown situation. You know, I think it's safe to say that, like as soon as this COVID-19 thing kicked off like a week ago, the people of Massachusetts just immediately went into, you know, a quarantine mode. They didn't need to have their arms twisted into compliance. It's like they kind of get it. They don't want any trouble. This is lay low, you know, lay low. And um, it's been disruptive, I would say, to a certain degree. But I have a feeling that when all this stuff is over, we'll look back on it like it wasn't really so bad to have to spend some time together, like in our houses, and kind of just lay low and relax a little bit. You know, some of us are really kind of getting an opportunity to relax. Of course, for me, relaxation is like, you know, recording songs, (laughs) so I don't really get a pass. I've been working probably more, but uh, the circumstances are much different, you know, because, of course, as you know, my wife is a public service worker, you know, so she's forced to stay home, you know, there's nowhere to go, but her and all of her colleagues are kind of Finding a way, you know, to communicate and get the work done anyway it doesn't have to be done face to face. And it's been an interesting learning experience, probably for her and all the people she works with, and for me too. You know, because I'm watching how they're getting it done. It's pretty innovative and pretty creative. Uh, this group of people that we call teachers—you know, these people who care about their work so much that even when they're forced to stay inside and not go to work they still find a way to come together and you know impart education to these kids you know that's what they focus on that's what they do and they don't get vacations you know they don't they don't stop they they keep going and they find a way to get it done to transmit whatever knowledge needs to be transmitted to these kids and i got to say On this Monday morning, a week into this whole thing, you know, it gives me a sense of optimism. It gives me a sense of hope that, you know, in the near future, this whole thing is going to end. And after it ends, like I said, we'll look back on it all uh, with like a sense of peace. And uh, like maybe it wasn't such a bad thing after all getting to spend time like this forced to spend time right to put everything down for a little while change your routine and spend some time quality time with the people that you love and care about in the house that you are the home i should say that you've made for yourself you know enjoy your space right um i'm sure (laughs) some people rolling their eyes at that like, okay, yeah, can we go outside now? You know, I've had enough of my living room. I'm ready to go do something, but uh, hang on, just hang on a little bit longer. I have a feeling that we're going to be all right and everything, all this stuff, all the confusion and the disarray, chaos of this strange, strange time will come to an end. It will pass and we'll be looking back on it before you know it. It'll be behind us. So, uh, okay. So there's my, uh, my Monday morning chat. And I'll pick it up again tomorrow. Well, hello there, happy innovators. It is March 24th, 2020, Tuesday. And how are you doing, huh? you hanging in there? Everything going okay? You're not going too stir-crazy? I hope not. Anyway, I got something I want to talk about today. And uh, it's this notion or this idea that I've heard from, you know, television and people. And, you know, I just hear it around, I guess. And for a while, too. That um, men, okay, men in general, are intimidated by women that are intelligent okay and uh, I of course don't agree with that but I don't know I guess maybe there's a lot of men who feel that way but I don't think so I think that's a myth I think that probably you know (laughs) like everybody else you know men are drawn to people that are intelligent (laughs) you know I mean, who wants to hang around with an idiot, right? Or who wants to be uh, associating with idiots, right? I mean, at least you'd like to believe the people around you, the people that you've chosen to be around you, you know, are with it at least a little bit, right, in the head? Like they've got it together a little bit? Maybe not, I don't know. But this idea that, like, men in particular are intimidated by women that are intelligent is, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that BS? I think it's BS. You know, I know a lot of women that are intelligent, that are unique and creative and funny and weird. And uh, I'm not intimidated by that. <laughs> it's like, What are you talking about? Like, you know, have you ever had a conversation with somebody who was not intelligent? You know, it's uh, <laughs> it can be a very frustrating thing right does that sound bad i guess it does but you know i don't mean it that way right i mean i'm not i'm not criticizing anyone you know what i am doing though is i'm praising people who are intelligent and what does it mean to be intelligent you know like let's think about that you know and i know i've talked about this before right? i know i have but uh it's probably worth talking about you know more than once (laughs) but what is intelligence you know Uh, and what is wisdom you know I've I've talked about that before too the difference between intelligence and wisdom you know Um, maybe you know we are maybe drawn to people who are intelligent we think are intelligent it's probably a better way of putting it like the people that we find intelligent you know we're not We don't want to spend our time with somebody that we think is unintelligent. But uh, have you ever met somebody that was really intelligent? Like, wow. You know, someone that can just do laps around you mentally and intellectually. You know, kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, there's a couple of moments in my life where, you know, there were certain people in my life, some of them older you know, some of them were elders to me. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're young and you have somebody around you that's older, uh, usually you tend to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're, you know, sharp and their guidance is good for you. You know, they can help you get to the next level or something, you know. You know what I mean? Aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, people, friends, people that are older, mentors. But then, you know, what's kind of weird is, and I think this is the case, at least it's kind of been my experience a little bit, you know, where you reach a certain age and you start to realize that you're, at least intellectually, okay, you're passing by some of the people that used to be your elders, you know, not that you're smarter than them, but that maybe... You have a different and maybe a more comprehensive understanding of certain things that they don't have, or they never got, or they refuse to believe or something, you know? Um, I don't know. And I guess, you know, I could give you some examples of this, okay? But I probably shouldn't, you know? Um, I do want to try to keep things on a more positive note. And believe me, I'm really not criticizing anyone it's just you know maybe you know what I mean maybe you don't I don't know but maybe you know what I mean I would assume if I can if I had the luxury of assuming something uh, in this podcast I would assume that you're a happy innovator you're listening you know so you're you're here you're, you're not going to you know pass judgment on an idea that I'm sharing with you here, right? Because it's just an idea, okay? And, uh, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind. And I reserve the right to have my mind changed or my opinion changed by someone. People can do that. I'm listening. You know, I'll listen. You know, I was just kind of saying to a friend of mine the other day, like, there's a lot of things that may or may not happen in our relationship as friends. We we may not talk as much anymore. We may talk every day or something like that. But one thing I'll never do is like cut you off. You know, if you're a friend of mine, especially with social media, you know, stuff like that, I just won't cut you off. I won't. I might not answer you. I might like ignore you for a while, but I'm never going to block you. I'm never going to cut you off. Okay. It's just, it's something that I won't do. I guess I could talk about that a little bit, you know, because I have had that happen before, you know, where, you know, I thought somebody was a friend, you know, and and, uh, I thought everything was fine. We were laughing and having fun and, you know, one way or another, those connections get cut. You know, is it my fault? Yeah, probably a little bit, I guess. You know, I can be a weird guy. I can be abrasive and I can be opinionated. And, you know, I guess I can be stubborn sometimes, but never so stubborn that I wouldn't change my mind or I wouldn't be able to change my mind about something. I think that's important, you know, as we go through life is to be not necessarily open minded, because open minded to me means like, you know, you'll listen to anything you know, and you'll take in anything. Eh, I think there are some limits. Not many, but there are some, right? There's some people I just, I won't listen to, you know? But I would say that with most people, I I have an open ear. Even if it's harsh criticism, you know, I can take harsh criticism. Uh, it's fair, you know? Uh, if I'm going to take the good, I got to take the bad, right? So, um, yeah, I don't even know where I was going like that. See, oh, I get disoriented. I don't know where I'm going with a conversation. That's weird. I guess uh, I am human after all, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I should probably just cut it off right there. Pick it up again tomorrow, man. I don't know, but I guess I can leave you off with this. Like you know, just think about that idea. I guess maybe of. You know, men being intimidated by smart women. I don't think so. You know, yeah, I'll leave it there. (laughs) I'll leave it there. Talk to you tomorrow. I'll give you a little bit more time. But until then, behave yourselves. Wash your hands. Remain calm. And I don't know, maybe listen to some PC3 music to kind of chill you out. All right. Peace out, everybody. Well, hello there, happy innovators. It's Wednesday, March 25th, 2020. And on and on we go with the five days podcast, number 77, special one. And I want to ask you a question, okay? Is there a difference or do you do you believe, do you feel that there's a difference between doing something to hurt someone okay and doing something that hurts someone okay do you follow me it's kind of a a little bit of a complicated question okay because I was in a discussion with a friend of mine not too long ago uh talking about this very thing and uh You know, it was one of those conversations that really kind of stayed with me, you know, long after it ended, just thinking about it, you know, this idea of like doing something like intentionally with the intention of hurting someone or doing harm to them, however it is, you know, physical or emotional or whatever, you know, and doing something that hurts them by accident or um something that's not done intentionally to hurt someone you know i think that there's a difference i do and i think it's something that's worth kind of at least thinking about a little bit okay like for instance in my life i probably have done some things that have hurt people okay i mean you can't get through life you know live 50 years of life without hurting someone right and maybe you know there have been a few times where I intentionally was you know doing the wrong thing like doing something that I knew would hurt someone and I wanted it to hurt them okay but I can't really remember too many of those In fact, I can't really remember ever really doing that, okay? And I can remember, though, times when I did something or I said something and it hurt someone's feelings or hurt their pride or, you know, sometimes uh, it ended the relationship, okay? Um, But I never did anything like that, really, really with the intention of hurting that person. I may have hurt them with my actions or my words, but I didn't intend to hurt them. I wasn't doing it to hurt them. Okay? Now, I guess the net result would be, like, in the end, the person is hurt, right? They feel bad or something. Or they're angry or something. Right? Like, that's the net result. But it does, in, at least in my opinion, it kind of matters like, how you get there. You know? Like, um, I think that's something that I'll be thinking about for a little while. You know? This idea of I guess like a sin of omission and a sin of commission. <laughs> or something. You know? Like, um... I don't know. I can't think of any time in my life offhand where I intentionally wanted to really hurt somebody. But I can think of times when I have hurt people. You know what I mean? And I feel bad and I feel remorse for that because it was not my intention. So I guess I could say at this point to anybody who's listening to this podcast that I may have offended or I hurt your feelings or something. I said something that was uh, maybe a little bit Maybe it was just the wrong thing to say, or I said it the wrong way, or I did it the wrong way, okay? Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to apologize to you, okay? Whoever you are, no matter who you are, you know, it's good to apologize, especially when you're sorry, especially when you didn't really mean to hurt somebody's feelings, okay? Because it matters to me how uh, people feel. You know, especially when it comes to me and, uh, you know, how I treat them and how I'm treated. You know, there's a right way and a, there's a wrong way. And I'm certainly capable of both. So if you're one of those people, uh, you know, I'm sorry. When was the last time you apologized to somebody and you really meant it? You know, apologies. You know, It's, it's just such a simple thing to do, but Man, sometimes it really makes a difference. At least to me it does. I've never been one of those people that kind of like really holds a grudge too much, you know. Um, I wouldn't say not at all or never, but not usually, you know. And uh, for me, it's kind of like if you do something wrong by me, all you really have to do is apologize. You know, that's it. Just say it to say you're sorry. We're and we're fine. We're good. You know, you don't need to say it twice. That's all I only, all I need is to hear it once, right? Something to think about, right? Probably especially because you're hanging around with your family all day and you know, you might be climbing the walls, you know, like <laughs> like you're going stir crazy. You know, you got cabin fever and the people that are in your space are driving you crazy. It could be the case. Fortunately for me, I can say with absolute truth that it's not the case, but uh, I know a few people (laughs) that are coexisting right now together, and I can't even imagine what it's like for them to be be forced, okay, because they're being forced to spend time with each other, you know, it's like a, it's a weird thing, you know, like when you have to really talk to people, you know. I never had a problem with that, obviously. I mean, I'm here talking to you. But I'm sure for a lot of people, it's pretty uncomfortable, you know. It makes me kind of think about this thing. I don't know. Uh, you know, like sometimes when my wife and I go out to dinner, you know, we're in a restaurant, we'll see like an older couple, like elderly couple, okay. And they'll be sitting there eating together, okay. But... They don't talk like at all. They don't even really even look at each other or even acknowledge each other, you know. And my wife and I both kind of notice that whenever we see it and, you know, say to ourselves, well, wow, we'll, ne- we'll never be like that. You know, I can't imagine, uh, you know, being out to dinner with my wife and not talking to her. I think that's weird, you know, Um And besides, like part of the whole, you know, fun of going out and dining out or going out and being outside together and doing something is, you know, the social interaction, right? I mean, uh, you're out to dinner, part of the ambiance or part of the experience of dining is talking and laughing and discussing things and stuff, right? Right. I I just don't understand that How, I, I don't know, maybe it's like You know, when a couple's been together for like 30 or 40 or 50 years You know, they don't really have uh, Too much to talk about anymore You know, they've talked about everything I mean, maybe, right? I guess that could make sense But for me, no way, man, no way Never, you know my wife and I will never run out of stuff to talk about. Ever. You know. In fact, you know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> My mom told me this. A long time ago, actually. She told me that when I was really little, and we would be like, and I'd be in the stroller. You know, she'd be pushing me around in a stroller. And I would be carrying on conversations with her while we were rolling around. Like, Isn't that strange? I was just an infant, like a little kid. Really little. And uh, my mom and I would just have these long dialogues talking about stuff. And, you know, she would go like into an elevator and I'd be in the stroller and we'd be talking and people would be laughing because we were having this back and forth. You know, never had a problem talking to people and communicating my ideas or my thoughts or listening to theirs. You know, (laughs) It's kind of kind of funny, a pretty weird kid, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's all that stuff that made me what I am today, <laughs> so, yeah, with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna back off the microphone for now, and, uh, pick it up again tomorrow, you know, make sure you talk to each other, listen to each other, you know, one mouth, two ears, you know, have patience with each other, in your cramped quarters, like in your house, you know, forced to hang around with these people that normally spend, you know, like what, 80% of their time away from you. And now they're in your space, you know, try to enjoy it, relish it. Because let me tell you, this whole COVID-19 thing, I got a feeling it's going to be over a lot sooner than people think. That's my personal opinion. So anyway, until tomorrow, Ladies and gents, love you, be safe, have some fun, and we'll talk later. Peace out. All right, happy innovators. It is Thursday, March 26th, 2020, and I'm uh, sitting here in my studio a little early in the morning this time around. And uh, the sun is out and uh, snow is melting. Spring is in the air. And, uh, of course, you know, coronaviruses, too, I guess. Um, You know, all this self-quarantining and all that kind of stuff that we're doing right now here in the United States, and and probably for most people all around the world, really, at this point, um, due to the COVID-19 situation, you know, I've been reflecting on it a lot because, you know, this event is unlike anything that I can remember ever happening before in the United States. And I'm consciously making an effort to reach out to as many people as I can, um, mostly to, you know, make sure that they're okay and everything kind of like see where they're at with the situation and, and get what their experience is like, you know, kind of like capture, uh, a snapshot of what things are like where they're at, you know, um, to kind of maybe, like, inform some kind of, like, overview for myself and helping to decide what is happening and what has happened and what might happen in the future, you know, just taking little bits and pieces from everybody that I can. Um, and one of the conclusions, actually, there's several conclusions that I'm coming to, okay, but the, the, the most important development I guess that you could call it that I'm noticing now here is there's this forced sense of quarantine I guess it's not forced, Okay, that's the wrong word Uh, no one's forcing us to stay in we're not mandated to stay in but we're being asked to it's a request, please stay in to prevent this virus from spreading and I guess like at face value, that seems like it would be um, inhibiting. uh, It would be uh, a hurdle, you know, to get past, you know, having to stay inside. But I'm noticing this strange and interesting thing. It's actually kind of beautiful, really, where the people who are still working, okay, they're working from their homes, um, but they're self-quarantining. Um, they're innovating new ways to get their work done from a remote location. Like, because we're all being asked to lay low, and uh, restaurants are kind of like restricted as to how they can serve their customers, you know, they can't have any more dining in, it can only be takeout food and stuff. You're starting to see, or we are starting to see, this new way emerging. And uh, I was just actually talking to my sister about it right before I did this podcast. And, um, you know, we were talking about this very thing. Um, And it's something that's been on my mind, you know, like how much of this innovation and these new ways of doing things that people are kind of inventing from their homes, you know, to get the work done somehow remotely, like how much of all this change is going to carry over even after This situation, this crisis, whatever you want to call it, is over. Now think about that, you know? Like, um, you have all these, like, restaurants that are putting together these new kind of, like, special takeout packages that you can buy for your family. That's And that's something that didn't exist two weeks ago, you know? Um, And it's a good idea, you know? It's a good idea. So I... I understand there's a lot of people that are kind of like fearful and they're nervous. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum that are like, now this whole thing is just a bunch of BS. Okay. I think you get a mix of opinions from a lot of different people. At least I do. Okay. From asking people, you know, um, but think about that idea of like when we're forced to innovate. I mean, you are a happy innovator, Right. When we are forced to innovate, we don't have any choice, like we have to find another way to do a thing. Um, We can count on that uh, from ourselves, you know. People are uh, resourceful and they're dedicated and uh, they're very determined and ambitious. and, uh, And I'm seeing a lot of it reflecting even like with my wife and her colleagues, like how they're coming together and what they're kind of like inventing like by the seat of their pants like it's happening unexpected they're forced into this situation where they need to rethink everything but still you know get the information to these students right or um, I mean it doesn't matter what your job is it doesn't matter like you have to find a way to do it you know still do it even though you can't go to work you can't go to the building. How can you still get it done? And there's so much of that happening right now. It kind of like renews my faith in humanity, you know. Uh, so that's my thoughts for right now. I mean, That's where I'm at right now. Thinking about that a lot. Um, and another thing about that is um, the idea of being put into a situation where We're kind of being forced into stillness. Do you know what I mean? Like um, whole communities, the whole country is in this state right now of like stillness. And it's uh, forced stillness. But um, even before this COVID-19 situation popped up, I was kind of like consciously sometimes making an effort to practice that idea of stillness, you know, it's kind of an important thing to do sometimes. I think just for your mental health or your emotions and stuff or whatever, like sometimes it's good to just put everything down, you know, and not do anything and just think about stuff and get your thoughts in order and get your plan in order and just have some time to yourself, you know, where it's quiet and you're not doing something. You don't have something to do. You just think you sit still. I mean, some people call that meditation, right? Uh, But, you know, it's not accompanied by like chanting or anything like what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just sometimes uh, consciously and by choice. Putting everything down, just for a little while. Don't even do the dishes. You know, don't even lift a finger. Just sit still and think about your life. You know, think about things that are in your sphere. You know, um, or maybe things that are outside of your sphere. That's another. Uh, that's another option as well. So, you know. It's not such a bad thing. It really isn't. And a lot of the people that I'm talking to now are kind of, you know, relating that kind of feeling to me. They're kind of saying the same thing. Like, it's not such a bad thing to to be forced, because we would have to be forced, right, as Americans, as... Busybodies. We would have to be mandated, you know. Someone would have to say, it's dangerous if you don't sit still. You know, that's the only way you'd get everybody to kind of just stop, you know, um, and stay home. And um, it's not such a bad thing, man. It's not. It sounds bad on paper, you know. And if you were to tell me two weeks ago that, you know, we would be in this state that we're in right now this sense of uh, isolation and quarantine and maybe like a little bit of like fear and worry about what's going to happen next and all that. But when you, you know, you put that kind of stuff aside, you put those thoughts aside and you look at it for what it is, we're actually in a pretty good situation right now. I think as a society, you know, we're kind of... uh, kind of being forced to rethink a lot of things and a lot of things are changing uh, as we speak you know and a lot of things I think are going to continue to change into the future you know so think about that maybe pay attention a little bit to uh, what you see happening around you as far as things changing like that maybe for the better you know there will be some positive changes And uh, how much of this change that's being innovated right now, as we speak, is going to carry over uh, as best practices, you know, even after this whole COVID pandemic crisis is over? And that's the big question. Pretty remarkable. And like I said before, it kind of renews my faith in humanity. Pretty cool. So there you go. There's my thought for the day. Thursday. Oh, one more day tomorrow, and uh, I'll be delivering this podcast to you. Number 77, episode number 77. Big one. Can't believe I'm there already. Anyway, peace out, everybody. All right, boppers. It's Friday, March 27th, 2020. And. uh, Are you familiar with the idea of drum circles? You know, those kinds of things where you get a group of people together and everybody has some kind of percussion instrument and, you know, the group of people will all just start playing together. You know, there's some beats, some rhythms, and they'll just get a thing going and they, you know, it's actually kind of like fun to watch. And uh, at least for me, it always was. And I always wanted to be part of a drum circle you know but I never really got invited into one because I didn't really hang out with too many like hippies and stuff you know that's usually the group of people that do that right the deadheads and the, the people who follow fish on tour right I, I wasn't friends with too many people like that so unfortunately I had never been invited into a drum circle but this one time I don't know why I'm even thinking about this today but it came into my mind so here you go Uh, this one time I was playing a show in Kent, Ohio, uh, the campus of Kent state university with a band that I was playing in. And, uh, before the gig started, like we got there and everything and we were set up and ready to go. Uh, we had maybe an hour or two of downtime before we had to start performing. So we were sitting outside the concert hall, uh, the lead singer of my group and I were just kind of sitting there and there was this drum circle these kids that started to gather like in this courtyard right in front of us, you know and they start to do a drum circle you know, some guys are doing hacky sack and some guys are you know, (laughs) playing rhythms and stuff and they start doing their bongos and their djembes and their dumbeks and all those different drums and you know, rattles and maracas and tambourines and all that kind of stuff. And it was fabulous, you know, it's fun for me to watch and to listen cuz I'm a drummer and you know, it's all about rhythm, right? So, I'm sitting there watching these young kids. Uh I was probably man I was probably like 27 years old maybe, and these were just college kids like 18, 19, 20. So, they were very young, you know, very young. 10 years younger. Oh my goodness, they were children, you know. And I was the adult. But um anyway uh, all of a sudden like you know the group started to kind of get bigger and the drum circle started to grow and there were people that were joining in that didn't seem to know the people they were just kind of like they heard the drums and they all came and started to get involved and hang out or whatever so I know I felt the inspiration I went uh, to my drum set I grabbed one of my drums just one and a couple of sticks a couple of drumsticks and I took it outside and I joined this drum circle with these kids and it was so funny you know it was so fun like I think these kids were like one like who is this old fart like joining our drum circle so there's like a little bit of that that ageism you know like snotty kind of thing but after a couple minutes like I wasn't like you know Going off or anything. I was just participating. I wasn't trying to lead or anything. And uh, it was so pleasant and so fun. And it was one of the funnest experiences. You know, it just was one of those things that I remember still, I guess. You know, I don't think about it all the time, but that feeling of like uh, unison, you know, being in unison with people that were strangers. And we were just kind of like, Oh, you know, we didn't know each other. We were just, you know, it was all improvisation. And, you know, there's absolutely no reason for me to be even talking about it now because it's not like there was some big funny story or some big finale or anything. But uh, it was just one of those experiences. It came and it went. It was very quick, it was very uh, impromptu, you know, uh, not planned and uh, just kind of happened to work out you know it went well and it was fun and it was a good memory so i don't know maybe that's why i'm bringing it up because i have some good memories <laughs> so oh you know i'm not even sure if any of this stuff any of it that i'm talking about really needs to be talked about but you know i don't think anybody really cares right you know just a voice in the wilderness at this point Uh, another voice, I guess that's what I should say. I'm just another voice in the wilderness, but uh, hopefully one that brings a little bit of optimism and a little bit of happiness and joy to your situation. Whatever situation you're in right now, you know, hang in there, tough it out, have some fun, and try to, you know, enjoy and relish the time you have to be still and to be calm you know uh, don't be too panicked or fearful and uh, enjoy your space enjoy this time because it's not going to last I'm telling you, you know, it's not going to last very much longer I don't think but uh, I don't know we'll see what happens nobody knows and uh, nobody knows That's what I probably should have called this one. Nobody knows. So anyway, the Singularity Podcast, episode number 77. Finally here. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. You know, thank you for tuning in, the ones who do regularly, and I guess even the ones that are tuning in now for the first time, you know. Uh, Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Now, remember, folks, uh, there's a lot of stuff coming up after this section of the podcast. So don't worry. I'm not going to cut you off after an hour. This is going to be a special episode. It's going to be a few extras in this one. So hopefully you're in for the long haul and you have the time and the inclination to listen for about an hour or two, or I don't even know, maybe longer. I don't know at this point. But uh, it's going to happen. So keep on listening and, uh, you know, hang in there. And remember, folks, you know, because this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. Uh, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy. Well, hello there, happy innovators. I got a little extra, a little bonus for you today on this 77th episode of the Singularity Podcast. I promised you it was going to be a very special one, and here we are. So I'm going to tell you a little story, okay? Kind of an important one, too. Um, a long time ago, when I was playing live a lot... And uh, in that band Slow Bob, okay? And even bands after that and before that, really. But this story takes place when I was drumming in Slow Bob. And, you know, we practiced a lot. And we played out a lot. And um, usually when it came to booking clubs um, for the band to play in, a lot of the time it was my responsibility. You know, to kind of set something up, especially if it was on the west side of town. The east side was more the other guys in the band. They would handle that. And if something was on my side of town, I would handle it. And uh, subsequently, that meant that there was a club that we played pretty often. A club that was pretty popular, too, in the scene in Cleveland. A place called the Fantasy Nightclub. Um, I played there many times. In fact, the first time I performed live with a band, like officially with a band in a club, it was that club. It's where I debuted. So um, I, over time, really kind of got to know the owner pretty well. She was somebody that I had a good relationship with. Um, She was really easy to work with and really cool and, uh, accommodating and just, you know, really open to promoting local music, you know, real, somebody who was really getting behind a lot of the bands in town. And, um, so I was given the responsibility. Okay. Again, uh, to book a show at the fantasy nightclub. And I had done this so many times, you know, like just maybe once every two months or something, Right at the same club, same person. We would get a show for a Friday night or a Saturday night. Uh, we would, you know, decide who the opener was, or sometimes the club owner would suggest a band that she was trying to help out. We would oblige, right? So uh, it was a Friday night. Okay, I remember that it was a Friday night, and uh, I went right after Slow Bob practice to this club. Okay, And, you know, where we practiced when I drummed for Slow Bob, we built a studio in the basement of our bass player's house. And it was a really nice space. It was really a good-sized space. It was private. You know, we weren't sharing it with anyone. Um, we had it set up really nice and everything. But it would get, like, really, really hot down there sometimes, especially in the summer, you know. And the air in the room wouldn't really move too much so it was like and we were in a basement so you know it was kind of like one of those things like after we would rehearse the set we had like a 10 song or 12 song set we would rehearse it three times every night you know sometimes twice but usually three times and and by the time I was done uh, doing that you know drumming for three or four hours really um, I was usually just absolutely soaked in sweat, you know, and uh, maybe a little uncomfortable, a little bit sore, sometimes like a little bit of a body buzz, like from you know hitting the drums so much for the past four hours, you know, that kind of thing. Like your bones are vibrating, you're sweaty, your clothes are wet, you know, and uh, this particular night I had to go after practice to the fantasy nightclub to set up a show for us right so i go outside and it's like oh just stepping out of the house that we practiced in going out into the night air it was like a summer night and it just felt so great to have that cool air like hit my skin you know i got in my car rolled the windows down like zipping down the road you know just flying down the freeway with the windows open listening to some cool music probably like Young Gods or something or I don't know what it was but it was great music whatever it was and the wind was in the car and I was drying off and feeling dry and cool and comfortable again and uh, just kind of like in one of those moods it was like one of those summer nights you know where there was kind of like this magic, like electricity in the air. I don't know what it was. It just, it was a good night, you know? And, uh, so I made my way to the fantasy nightclub and feeling good, you know? And, uh, so I go up into the club and I go to the bar where the owner is and, you know, let her know I'm there and I'm going to set up a, a gig, you know? And she's like, Oh, I'm really busy right now. Like just have a drink here. Take a drink and uh, have a seat. I'll be with you in a minute. Like, Okay. Now, this particular night at this club, okay, it was a Friday night. And every Friday night, as far as I can remember, was like this gothic dance party kind of thing that they would have. It was a, uh, something that eventually evolved into like its own club, Okay, a place called the Chamber. In the same building complex, they opened up another club called the Chamber, and you know, this dance party found its way down there. But at this time, the time I'm talking about, this dance goth night thing was happening in the Fantasy Nightclub, and it was like every Friday, and there would probably be about maybe 100 or 200 people there. uh, You know, all of them like goth kids with black hair, and you know. Uh, looked like Robert Smith from The Cure, and they would be dancing to Nights Are Ebb or Neubotten or uh, Clan of Zymox, you know, all those bands that were popular, the dark wave bands and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, every time I went to this club to set up a gig on a Friday night, there was this one girl that was always dancing in that club every time I was there, okay? And, of course, there's, like, this ocean of people in front of me, like, dancing on this dance floor. And I'm, like, up maybe, like, a foot or two off the dance floor, like, sitting at a table, looking down onto the dance floor, watching these people dancing, waiting for the club owner to come over. Kind of like killing time, right? But, oh, my gosh, was it fascinating to watch, you know? Because there's all these people, and they're all interesting looking people and they're dancing and some of them were friends of mine sometimes I'd see somebody I knew or something hey what's up you know but there was this one girl and she would dance by herself okay now I need to explain this very carefully because it was really kind of one of those things that really became kind of a life changing experience okay it was like a I don't know like a My brain kind of snapped into like some kind of clarity, okay? Uh, And it did that while I was watching this girl dancing. Now, the music, of course, is like pulsing and, you know, upbeat and kind of, it's dance music, right? 808 kick drum, you know, all that stuff, right? Uh, Powerful dance music, you know, electric and this girl for some reason every time i saw her she was kind of like by herself okay she wasn't dancing with a guy or a girl she wasn't dancing with her friends or anything like that she was kind of like looking up okay to the ceiling and like with her arms reaching up you know to the to the ceiling like and she was moving in halftime. Like like in slow motion almost. Like totally just like doing her own thing. And it was so cool to watch. I mean, because they have like, you know, strobe lights and, and tele beams, you know, all the lights going crazy and all that stuff. And of course the music and the energy in the air. And then there's this girl like under a pin spot coming right down on top of her. You know, this white light shaft of light you know and she's doing this weird kind of awesome like slow movement kind of thing and I was just fascinated by it you know like I don't know if she was high on something I don't know if she was drunk but I don't think so okay I don't think so I think she was just like really losing herself like in the music now the reason that I'm bringing it up is because while I was sitting there watching her do her thing, even though I had seen her like a, many times before, I, I never got to know her name. I never knew who she was. My friend Eric actually knew her and he knows, well, he claimed he knew who I was talking about because she was kind of like a fixture on the scene. Like people knew who she was. I didn't, okay? And I never knew her name. I never got to know her. I never talked to her. I didn't really want to, you know, I didn't really want to. But the reason that I'm talking about this, okay, is because while I was sitting there watching her, all right, I realized that her and I had something in common, okay? Now, we were both doing it very differently, but we shared something with music. And I'll explain that to you now. Okay, I'm sitting there watching her, and it occurs to me that a lot of the time when I was drumming with bands, drumming live, okay, um, sometimes, I would say most of the time, okay, um, we would start to play and stuff, but then somewhere in that process of going through the songs and stuff... I would kind of lose myself in it, okay? And I've described it to my wife kind of like being like in a vortex or like in a tornado. That's what it felt like to me. Like, I became like almost like unaware of the guys in the band, like almost like unaware of anything that was beyond my drum set, okay? And uh, I would have my head down, uh, my eyes closed sometimes, and kind of like just... Feeling the energy of the music while I was drumming, and I would kind of get lost in it, you know. And it was kind of like almost like a meditation like I would get to this level after a little bit of time and I would stay there until the playing was over, you know. And it, and I developed this relationship with my instrument, the playing of the instrument, and all that. Like, it became an escape. It became like a way of going to another place for me. Without sounding too corny, but I swear to you, it's true. Okay? It's the best way I can describe it. And while I was sitting there watching this girl, it kind of occurred to me. Like, she's doing the same thing that I do. Okay? Like, she's lost in this music. She is not aware of anybody around her. Or at least it seemed that way. And I felt the same way when I was doing my thing. Now, you got to bear in mind that only, you know, a few minutes ago, maybe 20 minutes or 15 minutes ago, I was drumming. And, you know, I was in that space and I just came out of it and I'm watching her you know, in it. It's just kind of like enraptured, you know, and losing herself. And I thought, isn't that beautiful? Like, that is so Awesome. You know, I'm like she's dancing, I'm drumming but we really do share this thing where it's like we can get lost in it. You know, are you one of those people Like, can you get lost in music? Can you just escape into it? You know, I mean that sounds poetic or, you know, whatever, but are you? Can you? Because I can and obviously she could, you know, and That experience, that night, that whole thing, that that moment of clarity, like, snapped into my brain, and I kind of, like, made that connection, and I thought about it, I was so, like, inspired by that, you know? So, fast forward, okay, maybe about, well, let's see, that was probably back in, like, 1998, and then we fast forward to probably about... 2008 okay Um, this memory of this girl and this experience and all this stuff came back to me okay and I started to do um, some creative writing and stuff and I actually wrote uh, a little piece um, about this experience okay and maybe I'll share that with you at the tail end of this podcast if you're interested you can hear me you know what I wrote about this experience. But um, this whole thing kind of came through my mind again in 2008. And uh, it was at the time when I was kind of really hitting my stride with uh, my new technology and recording myself at home and everything. And I decided that what I wanted to do was, like, I wanted to make a song that that girl would dance to. Like, I wanted to make something for her. Even though I didn't know her, I never met her, she probably will never hear it. Like, I wanted to make something for her. Okay? So, I sat down and I started to make this song. Okay? Now, the song was called Strobe. That's what I called it. Kind of like a tribute to that light flashing on her and it's like, you know, that whole idea of being on a dance floor and losing yourself in music. Um, giving her something like tribal, something that would be like hard driving dance stuff for her. And isn't that cool? I think it's cool. You might think it's strange, but I think it's cool. You know? Like uh, it didn't matter. Like if anybody ever knew or if she ever knew or anything. Like, all that mattered was I was going to do this. And and on top of that what I decided was I was going to make it, like, a really ambitious piece of music, at least for me, okay? It was going to change a lot. It was going to be long. It was going to, like, a long-duration song. Um, I wanted it to go up and down. I wanted to have, you know, um, many different colors and kind of, like, take the listener, you know, her, this imaginary listener, like, on this journey, like something for her to really dig into on that dance floor. That was my motivation. That was the spark for this song. And I worked so hard on that song. I think up until that point, it was the most time I spent on a song idea. And I worked so meticulously and carefully through this song idea and I didn't stop and like go off into something else and then come back to it. No, 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 no. I started it, I went all the way until this piece of music was finished. Okay? And to this day, okay, I still consider it one of my most ambitious uh, songs. you know, Pieces of music that I put together. I listen to it now and sometimes it's like, man, I I don't know how I did it, you know what I mean, I was really into this thing, you know, I really put time into this, it took me probably about three months, you know, to really, really get it to where I was thinking, okay, this is done, and it's perfect, you know, Um, it's a little bit weird, kind of like a little bit ambient, hard driving drums, uh, repetitive themes and stuff, and kind of playing around with the time signatures Um, you know I'm sure if you're a drummer or something if you listen to this track carefully you'll hear what I'm doing with the drums and how I'm playing with kind of like two different time signatures at the same time I'm going back and forth from one to the other I know that's very very technical and all that stuff but trust me a lot of thought went into this a lot of glucose in my brain went into this song and, um, you know, I decided for the 77th episode of the Singularity Podcast that, uh, I wanted to include the story of this girl and this experience and this inspiration and this track that I put so much time into. And, um, I wanted to share it with you for the 77th episode. And I also wanted to share it because, you know, recently I've called that session back up into my new technology. I figured it was worth revisiting um, because it was such an ambitious piece for me to do. Um, I wanted to give it a facelift. And that facelift version of this song will be included on the new Pipe Choir record, okay, and the new Pipe Choir albums, I guess I should say, but tonight, this time, because well, it's nighttime for me now, right now, I'm doing a late nighter, um, I'm going to share with you the older version of it, because I'm very proud of it, I think it's really great, in fact, in some ways I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't touch this, You know, maybe I should just leave it alone, but, you know, I'm ambitious, so <laughs> i you know decided to give it a tune up but and you'll hear that later i promise you'll hear that later but for now this time around you're going to hear strobe uh originally released under the pc1 moniker okay on the album division it was the album closer okay um pretty long track um i forget exactly how long it is Probably like 11 minutes or 13 minutes or something like that. And, um, you know, have a listen to it and you'll see what I mean. And I guess maybe while you're listening to it, you know, if you can, okay, picture this really beautiful girl with spiky blonde hair in like a black gothic kind of like dress kind of thing on, you know, a beautiful face, beautiful body but kind of dancing, you know, by herself in her own space and just doing her own thing, just disappearing into the music, you know? This is the song I made for her, the woman I'll never meet, never talk to, don't even know her name, but man, it only took about 15 or 20 minutes of watching this chick doing her thing, and that was enough inspiration to last me for the rest of my life. You know? Because here I am now, what? 30 years later or something? And I'm talking about it again. You know, It just stayed with me. It was so cool. So awesome to watch. So cinematic. You know? And something like that, for a guy like me, can inspire so much. You know? Kind of a cool thing to think about makes me a little proud of myself you know that I have it together enough in my noggin to kind of like pick up on that kind of stuff you know and trust me it was about music sex had nothing to do with it nothing like that had anything to do with this it just was a moment you know that moment of clarity and that bond that I shared with this chick you know getting lost in music you know feeling the rhythm feeling the the beat and the energy and the electricity so take that thought take those thoughts with you as you listen to this track okay see if you can kind of feel me on this one alright uh, so without further ado episode number 77 this is the grand finale you get to hear PC One or Pipe Choir One, uh, Strobe from the Division album, released originally, I think, in like 2010. And uh, this is that version. And then, of course, like I said, in the future, you'll be hearing the new updated version of Strobe. So enjoy, everybody. And, you know, just a really quick reminder if you stick around till after the song is over, if you're interested. I'll tack on a little bit of that creative writing I told you about that I wrote about this experience, you know, the strobe dancing girl experience, you know Uh, I'll share with you some of that if you're interested so there you go peace out everybody remember folks if you want to keep what you've got you've got to give it away take it easy happy innovators here's that piece of creative writing that I was talking to you about and uh, it was written a long time ago when we were in a different time and the world was a very different place so grab your second cup of coffee right, and uh, kick back and relax and listen to a little bit of creative writing that I did back in the day STROBE by Mike Bostwick For five solid years, our rehearsal schedule had been set in stone. We would meet without exception for about four hours every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evening. In those days, I was working construction full-time. The work was, as one might imagine, usually mundane and physically taxing. But the money was good, good enough anyway to buy me a decent car and readily replace a constant stream of broken drumsticks, ripped cymbals, and torn drum skins that had, in those years, evolved into somewhat of an expensive problem for me. After a long day of strenuous work, I would head straight to band practice. The window of time between the end of my workday and the beginning of band practice was, unfortunately for me, very small. On days that I worked overtime, that window was even smaller. On those days, I would arrive late to practice without the luxury of a shower or sometimes even without a simple change of clothes. The songs we had written were heavy and loud and confrontational. My drumming style at that time was extremely physical and aggressive by design. Our rehearsals would usually last well past sundown. And as the sun disappeared and twilight approached, my physical energy would be absolutely pushed to its limits. By the time our rehearsal ended, Fatigue would have set into my body, my eyes would burn from smoke and sweat, and the bones in my hands and arms would tremor from the shock of a solid day of abuse. Hot showers and soap had become something that I relished. Sleep had become something I valued. The loneliness and frustration of my tedious existence was much easier to ignore after my head hit the pillow. It was a grind. The routine was brutal, and for five years it had become the crux of my life. Although I realized from day to day the toll my schedule was taking on my physical well-being, at that time I did not fully grasp the enormous price I was paying emotionally and socially. Years of going straight to practice after work on weeknights and playing shows, often out of town on weekends, left very little time for personal relationships. The band had become, by default, my entire social life. Emotionally, I was in the void. Almost every aspect of my life outside of the group seemed to be gradually fading away. The lines between days and nights had blurred. Time swirled. My emotions spiraled. I felt increasingly isolated and irritable. I lost touch with several of my closest longtime friends. Most of those relationships, despite later attempts at recovery and reconciliation, were permanently lost. I rationalized all of these changes to myself as an unavoidable collateral damage, the hidden cost of pursuing one's passions. I was young, I was focused, I was blinded by my ambitions. On the one hand, I think I was wrong. On the other hand, I cannot deny that that rigid and hardcore schedule of that band accelerated my development as a musician the various disciplines demanded by the group had, in many ways, become something I learned to savor. Even though our attitudes towards each other were often less than warm, offstage, we were always professional when the lights went up, on stage. As a power trio, we could have not been any tighter. Three bodies, one mind. While in the studio recording our debut CD our performance surpassed even our own expectations. Our high-energy, technically challenging songs expanded my playing abilities and strengthened my body. I learned the rudiments of live performance and the ebb and flow of a powerful delivery. My creativity flourished. I started to truly discover and develop the mechanics of my drumming technique. Playing from the shoulders, not from the wrists, proper posture, alternative sticking techniques, etc., etc. At that time, in my opinion, my drumming had began to evolve into an art form all of its own. I felt that I had began to break away from almost all of my conventional influences, you know, the influences of my youth, and truly forge my own style of drumming. To their credit, my bandmates had made several great leaps forward of their own. All three of us had devoted countless hours of intense thought and energy to our individual stations. When it came to our music, we were all equally serious and dedicated. There was an undeniable synergy to what we were doing. I was content with the progress we had made and were making as a group. I was also proud when, after a couple of years of refinement and constant live performances, our music finally seemed to be catching on. Recording artists at our level, though hardworking and committed, often spent much more money on their projects than they would ever hope to earn from them. This fact never mattered much to me at all. Finances, or moreover, lack of finances, was always more of a distraction from what was obviously more important to me. For better or for worse, I had accepted from a very young age that by choosing the life of a musician, choosing that path, I had inadvertently chose almost everything that would or would not come along with that lifestyle. Over time, I learned to be skeptical of and eventually avoid altogether musicians and artists that were motivated only by material gain. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy success just as much as or maybe even a little more than the next guy. But there is a world of difference between personal success and financial success. I never, for a moment, confused those two things. And I always, always knew what I wanted. Believe me when I say that fact alone has proven itself to be priceless over the years. After many years of hard work and unabated persistence, our band had started to earn a reputation as one of the more serious groups in our town. We were carving out a little niche for ourselves. We were doing our own thing. And we were doing it very well. We were completely independent. And we were. We were. Brothers at least on some kind of creative level. For those reasons, and perhaps many more, I did not want to quit this group. But, unfortunately, even the successes that we had started to enjoy always seemed to be punctuated by some personal crisis from one or both of my bandmates. Large crowds, good press and all of the other things that young bands enjoy gradually began to matter less and less to me as the years went by. In the spring I had been given an offer to drum with a new band. It was now summer and I had decided to accept that offer. I knew that for me, juggling a drumming situation with two full-time groups was going to be very difficult and complicated to say the least. Nevertheless, I really felt that the new group had some measurable potential and might, maybe, be worth any sacrifices I would most undoubtedly be forced to endure. And so, after a couple of weeks of thinking it over, I decided to pencil it in. My second band on my off nights, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. My two bandmates upon learning this were completely outraged and disappointed. My joining of the second group was seen by them as a personal betrayal and a telltale gesture that I was probably going to be exiting the band very soon. Although I did not share their opinion, all of these factors compounded the pre-existing tensions between us and hastened the permanent dissolution of that group. Any residual shreds of amiability that had been for years holding our band together now started to disintegrate. After seven or eight weeks after I had informed them of band number two, we met, as usual, at our studio for practice. Little did I know that it would not only be our final rehearsal as a band, but it would be the last time the three of us would be in the same room together. The tensions between all three of us were palpable. After the third and final session of that evening, the three of us were sitting in a lounge area we had set up immediately outside our rehearsal studio. It had become a ritual for us to unwind in the lounge area immediately before and after rehearsal sessions. Various beverages would be twisted open, cigarettes and cigars would pop out, lighters would snap and click them to light, and we would analyze the recording of our last session. Or sometimes, just talk. Or, more often, we would argue. On this particular night, the guitar player and I had been volleying sarcastic remarks back and forth to each other throughout the entire rehearsal. The tone of our conversation was its typical condescending and rude at the beginning of the evening. However, by the end of the session. His patience slowly gave way to rage, and I was caught off guard by a sudden intensity of the situation. Some of the things he said to me that night were permanently scorched into my memory. He said things to me that night that true friends would never say to one another. Sometimes, words can really hurt. I'm not sure if he realized it, but that night... He had crossed the line with me. I was insulted. I was enraged. But most importantly, I was hurt. Several minutes later, as my roasting reached its conclusion, the bass player leaned back quietly in his chair with his hands folded over his chest. His eyes focused on the small alarm clock that had been bolted to the highest corner of the studio wall. Occasionally, he would turn to the ashtray on the coffee table between us, just long enough to knock the ashes off the tip of his cigar, but just quick enough to avoid making eye contact with me. His approval of my humiliation, acknowledged only by the slight grin on his face. His silence spoke volumes to me. Silence. Over the course of the evening, he had become less entertained and increasingly irritated by our bickering. And after an hour or so of silent participation, he decided that he had wasted enough of his Friday evening. With a burst of obvious frustration, he hopped off the couch and announced that he was calling it a night. The guitarist and I agreed. "'and we immediately started to gather up our things "'and make our way towards the door. "'The walk to our cars that night "'was unusually awkward and silent. "'Fumbling through our key rings, "'we mumbled our usual goodbyes. "'But by the time I had located my car keys, "'they had already driven away. "'Exhausted and frustrated, "'I swung my car door open, and I collapsed into my driver's seat, slamming the door behind me. Except for the sound of my breathing and the ringing in my ears from band rehearsal, the air inside of my car was perfectly still. Frustrated from the past five hours of brain-rattling noise and useless bickering at band practice, the solace of my van was a much welcomed thing I was completely physically exhausted my eyes were open but my body and my brain were beginning to fail me my stomach was groaning its emptiness and my throat and my eyes were dry and burning resigning for a brief moment to the stillness of my car my eyes closed and my mind began to drift back to a time when I was much younger. Way back to the days when MTV still played videos and cell phones were the size of suitcases. My childhood home was located about two miles away from an international airport. The noise of the commercial jets flying close to the ground and preparing to land or to take off was something that the people of my small town myself included, had grown accustomed to. Sitting in my car, eyes closed, I remembered with a smile my school lessons, from kindergarten to high school, being regularly interrupted by ear-splitting noise of a descending or ascending jetliner. About every 20 minutes or so, you would hear a distant rumble, The sound at first would be ever so faint. Actually, it was more of a feeling than a sound. Over the next five minutes, the rumble would gradually swell, until the jet was directly overhead. And when it was directly overhead, the sheer volume was unbelievable. The intense screaming of its engines would literally rattle the entire school building. All classroom activity would automatically cease for a few seconds as we waited and waited and waited until the sustained shrieking of the jet faded off and away. Then, without skipping a beat, the lesson would resume. This ritual would occur regularly throughout the day. You could set your watch to it. Jet engine noise had become so normal in my small town that no one ever even seemed to recognize it anymore. It wasn't until many years later, after moving away, that I realized how strange and almost comical that whole situation was. Even now, from time to time, I can't help wondering how many accumulative hours of my education were lost because of those long, frequent pauses. After a few dazed seconds, I was suddenly jarred from my trance. My opening eyes registered the numbers 1132 glowing on the small clock on my cassette deck. Although my immediate desire was to grab some takeout food, go home, take a shower, ah a shower, yes, a steaming hot shower, and then finally sleep. There was still one last thing for me to do before food or slumber was even a remote possibility. In the week prior, it had been agreed upon by the members of my new band that we were ready to try out our songs in a live setting. By default, the responsibility of securing gigs for the group had, for some unknown reason, fallen on my shoulders. Seeing as it was almost midnight on a Friday evening, the club that we had chosen to debut our new material at would probably be very crowded. Needless to say, the notion of being thrust into a loud, noisy club at that moment was thoroughly unappealing to me. Reluctantly, I started my car, clicked my seatbelt, and bolted towards the freeway. As I began to drive, a mild stream of cool night air started to rush through my half-opened window, and it brushed over my face. It started to dry the various patches of smoky, salty band room sweat that typically saturated my clothes, skin, and hair after every band rehearsal. As I turned on to the entrance ramp of the freeway, the mild stream of air whispering through my window suddenly swelled into one steady blast that blew my hair back and filled my ears with a low, clipping rumble. The feeling of the wind was both refreshing and soothing. The sound of the wind crashing against the curves of my ears was almost hypnotic to me. I was invigorated. That cool rush of comfort was a much welcomed distraction from the sharp, stinging pain of the raw and freshly opened blisters on both my palms and my fingers. I rolled my window down the rest of the way, deep inhale, deep exhale. Then sinking back into my seat, I noticed the faint whisper of ethereal music delicately trickling out of my speakers. I instantly remembered what cassette tape it was. I quickly reached for the volume knob and adjusted the sound to a more audible level. The wind and the music were now swirling all around me in a cool wave of icy blue tranquility. The music I had selected for my drive across town was a mixtape of several of my most recent pipe choir song sketches. Devoting six nights a week to two full-time groups and working a full-time job did not allow a lot of personal free time in my schedule. However, any spare time I could find would be spent in the sanctity of my tiny home studio, where I would regularly be found losing myself in various sound experiments I conducted on my small Tascam 4-track recorder. Although they were very crude recordings, many of the ideas I conjured up were much more exciting to me than any of the music I was making at that time. After all, they were my songs. They were my ideas. Although the process of learning and refinement was, for me, often very slow and tedious, it was that very process of learning and discovery that I enjoyed so much. There alone... In the solitude of my low-lit studio far away from the rigidity and the tension of my various group situations my mad scientist anything goes approach to creating and recording was beginning to produce some very interesting results looking back on that time i now realize that it was around that time that my sense of admiration for great recording artists and record producers and sound engineers truly began to expand. My already existing affection for albums by groups like The Verve, The Young Gods, and Enigma had evolved into somewhat of an obsession, their influence shamelessly bleeding over into my own work. As I listened to my music filling up my car, I liked what I heard. With a huge smile of satisfaction on my face, I lit a cigarette and rewarded myself with a few long drags of smoke. The rush of nicotine vibrated over my nervous system in these exquisite waves of relief. My van now surging like a comet rocketed off into the night, down the dark and desolate freeway, away from the city, westward, toward the lake. About 20 minutes later, I rolled into the parking lot behind the club. I slowly climbed out of my car, groaning like a sore and withered old man. Determined to get home as soon as possible, I summoned a tiny bit of will and shuffled my way towards the club entrance. I hobbled around the corner of the building and my focus abruptly shifted from my general physical discomfort to a group of six or maybe nine very beautiful gothic death chicks that were smoking and chattering near the club entrance. The muffled music coming from inside the club was considerably loud, even outside the building. I walked towards the door, passing that group of girls. My eyes casually studied their gorgeous and interesting faces. Unfortunately, I did not recognize any of them. Slightly disappointed, I reached for the door handle and yanked that heavy door open. The music in the club that night was literally rattling the walls and windows as I climbed the steps to the club's main floor. The doorman, recognizing me, waved me through. I proceeded into the club and headed straight for the bar. Leaning on the bar, I waved my arrival to the club owner. She acknowledged my arrival with her always-friendly smile. Sliding a drink into my hands and leaning to my ear, she asked me to grab a seat and just wait for a few minutes. We nodded and smiled our understanding to each other and I turned around to scan the crowded bar area for a place to sit. Miraculously, after a brief search, I spotted an unclaimed table near the perimeter of the dance floor. In one fluid motion, I pulled a chair from the table, spun it around, and straddled it. Lighting another cigarette, I crossed my arms over the top of the chair and settled in. With nothing to do but wait, my eyes naturally started to assess my surroundings. By this time, my lack of physical energy was now starting to affect my motor activity in some very interesting ways. The thin and bright lights that lit the otherwise completely dark room seemed absolutely spectacular to me. Light. Dancing light. Light fantastic. Light of every size, shape, and color you could imagine exploded in front of me, burning my eyes in these dazzling rhythmic bursts and long, smooth sweeps. The lights accentuated that loud and driving rhythm, pounding out of the club's massive sound system. My once-anxious mood was now surprisingly serene and lucid. The cool liquid and the smooth ice in my glass relieved the thirst that had been burning in my throat for hours and it managed to take the edge off of my extreme hunger. The lights that surrounded me captured my senses, hypnotizing me. Their brilliant textures were disorienting, and they literally took my breath away as they flickered to the music, frantically throwing shadows all around the club. Mesmerized, my eyes continued to slowly scan the room, my gaze eventually focusing on a girl that was dancing about 50 feet in front of me. She was very beautiful. She moved very slowly and very sensually. Her eyes were closed and her wispy platinum blonde hair elegantly framed her striking and lovely face. The expression on her face would alternate from a dire and pouty biting her bottom lip expression to a mouth-open smile of euphoria. She was dancing all alone. Unlike the 500 or so robots who were bouncing all around her and who were probably using the moment to impress some nearby person of interest or something, she was simply dancing for herself. Her slow, sensual movements were so different from everyone else's on that dance floor that she really started to capture my attention. I realized that she was moving in halftime to the music. As she swayed to the music, a small spotlight directly over her head surrounded her immediate space, in a smoke-filled beam of extremely bright white light. The light would disappear for a few milliseconds and then reappear, on again, off again, on again, off again. It seemed to me that she, perhaps more than anyone else in the club, was receiving something totally sublime from the music. It was a form of intensity that I had only began to recognize, but something she truly understood. It was passion and salvation, fused together and found on the dance floor. As she danced, she emitted an electricity of her own. Her energy was not sexual, but it was sensual it wasn't private but it was personal it was spiritually electric and intimate and it was so powerful that I could feel it from across the room now I had been to clubs most of my adult life I had even been known to dance a few times over the years at weddings and whatnot. However, dancing was, in my sphere of existence, usually something to be avoided at all costs. In my hyper-masculine world of hard-edged and confrontational math rock, dancing was considered almost exclusively feminine and thoroughly pointless. Rage was the acceptable form of expression. Adrenaline was the currency of the day. The goal was controlled chaos. It wasn't until that moment that a whole new universe of musical power was revealed to me. The power that existed almost exclusively in the world of dance music, I was intrigued. When I think about it now, it seems almost laughable to me. It had never occurred to me that dance music, a genre that I almost completely ignored, was fundamentally centered around my instrument of choice, i.e., drums and rhythm. To me, This dancing girl personified the intense connection that could exist between a drummer and a dancer. We had in common an exclusive and primal language that most ordinary people outside of the conversation did not even recognize or even understand. Although she was probably not a drummer, and I was most certainly not a dancer. We shared a mutual appreciation for rhythm, respectful to each of our own distinct perspectives. I suppose that, historically, we had been connected to each other for centuries in that way. My approach to my role as a drummer had been, up until that moment, incomplete. She represented to me the other half of the musical equation. Suddenly, a great veil had been lifted from my eyes, and a whole new musical concept was revealed to me. The wordless conversation between the dancer and the drummer. It was a watershed moment for me as a musician. And it was, for me, an epiphany. I never introduced myself to that girl that night. I never spoke a word to her. I never even knew her name. Nevertheless, without speaking a single word, she said so much to me. She showed me how to feel music in a completely new way. To this very day, it is fascinating to me that moment so fleeting, so completely unexpected, could recalculate my musical trajectory and remain so vivid in my memory after all these years. I wonder if she sensed, in some way, on that dance floor that night the impact she would have on me for so many years to come. Probably not. I remember trying to convey my discovery to my various bandmates only to looks of confusion and sometimes even laughter. I started to realize that I was slowly beginning to grow away from them. I embraced and celebrated the fact that, as a musician, I was always open to experimentation and, as an artist, in a constant state of becoming. And I was glad for it. The desire for musical growth was not something that, in my opinion, my fellow bandmates truly pursued. They my bandmates gradually started to appear to me as comfortable, resigned, and stuck. They had latched on to some strange, bacchanalian myth of the rock star and decided that it was the lifestyle they enjoyed, not the music. I began to question why they were making music in the first place. By this I mean, are you here for the party, or are you here for the money, are you here for the fame, or are you on a mission of discovery? Why are you here? Of course I could never ask these questions, and they could never answer these questions truthfully, because doing so would open them up to a whole host of revelations that would inevitably destroy their comfortable image that they had established for themselves. I did not feel superior to them, but I did feel separate. I knew that I was without a doubt on the verge of a serious and exciting musical exploration that they would not and could not be part of. I wrestled with that knowledge and its implications. I began to resent their rockstar attitudes and their destructive personal habits, especially when they began to criticize my personal inclinations toward focus and discipline. My scientific and eclectic approach to music was not something I could share with my bandmates. Therefore, collaboration with them was probably futile. I knew in those days that my musical future did not include them.